Hello there and welcome to another edition of Podcasts from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. Can I remind you that Podcasts on the Edge is growing in all sorts of new directions and while it's delivered first on the Financial Mail digital pages, it's also available as an Apple podcast and on Spotify as well, so we're taking over the world. My guest today is both a very nice man and utterly intimidating. He is Professor Anton Eberhardt. He directs the Management Program in Infrastructure Development, Investment and Reform at the UCT Graduate School of Business. He's advised governments both here and around the world. He's written books on energy, written over 100 peer-reviewed papers. He was on the National Planning Commission. But for me, first and foremost, he's the voice of reason on energy, on social media, where is where I find him most often. Welcome, Anton. And in preparation for this podcast, I've been reading the energy and sustainability chapter of the National Development Plan, uh, the chapter I think that you that you wrote back in 2012. It's hard to believe it was so long ago, and it's also sad because really that plan is surely now lost to us. Yes, hello, Peter. Um, good to chat. Um, it is a long time ago. Um, I wouldn't have thought as many. Uh, and it is a pity that, that many of the things that we um, laid out there are still not... Uh, fully implemented, although we are starting to see some changes and uh, no doubt we'll, we'll chat, chat about them. Yeah. Maybe the way to introduce those changes in, is, is to just read a couple of tweets that you've put out in the past couple of days. I found two or three. According to a presentation, you say, on February the 2nd, according to a presentation by ESCOM CEO today, South Africans will be paying 50% more for electricity by 2025. That's in four years' time. I think it is likely to be more, you say. Time for consumers to invest in their own power generation solutions. Then you also tweet a couple of days later, South Africa needs to build 16,000 megawatts of new power by 2030. ESCOM can't do it, it's broke. Two reforms needed. One, insulate the grid from ESCOM's financial woes and create an independent transmission system and market operator to contract new power. Two, free up self-generation grid-tired market. What do you... What's what's missing, Anton? Why why do we not seem? You say you've made progress since 2012, and yes, there is there is uh, some renewable energy on the ground in the ground, but why why is everything so painfully slow? Yeah, it is it is slow, um, and it's moving to a crisis because we are now in a position of uh, a power shortage. ESCOM estimates we are short of now, at, uh, this year, around 4,000 megawatts. The CSR, when they do their numbers, think it's closer to 8,000 megawatts. And you mentioned that sort of power shortage through to 2030 of about 16,000 megawatts. That's to meet 16,000 megawatts of demand, and we'll have to build even more megawatts of power generation capacity to, to meet that. So I, I don't think government has fully internalized just what a massive investment program we have ahead of us. So ESCOM, ESCOM's uh, current uh, build program is nearing an end. So it's beginning to complete its mega Madupi and, and Kusila programs. I'll add a little bit more. But it's going to have to decommission about 11,000 megawatts of old kit before 2030. So these are old power stations that were built in um, the 60s 
some of them in the early 70s. Some are now older than 50 years old. In fact, ESCOM's average age of its generation uh, fleet is, is now nearing 40, 40 years. Is it impossible for a power station to, to, to work any longer than that? Or Well, it's not impossible, but it just becomes increasingly expensive to right. keep them going. I, you know, I... I drive 50-year-old cars, right, and um, I, I maintain them every year. And if you haven't maintained them well uh, and you haven't done that preventative maintenance, it becomes even more expensive and you start getting equipment failures. The original equipment manufacturers are not necessarily still all around, and it becomes cheaper to build uh, new new capacity. Right. So, I, I, Anton, I pick up a, uh, engineering news or saw it in, um, online the other day, and it tells me that the National Energy Regulator, this is NERSA, that its electricity subcommittee has decided on February 5, that's earlier this week, not to approve, not to approve, this is despite ESCOM's, all of ESCOM's problems, ESCOM's application for the emergency procurement of electricity from eight private generators under a short-term power purchase uh, plan program. How is that even possible? How can that even happen? We've, we are load shedding at the moment, I think, in parts of the country where yesterday. Why are we not all working towards the same objective here? Surely it's obvious what needs to be done. Um, good question, Peter. Um, I used to be on the board of the, the regulators from 97 through to 2004. So I have some sense of how it operates. But of course, in that period, we had a surplus capacity, um, and this wasn't the issue. I don't think the regulator has either fully internalized just what a mountain we need to climb in terms of, of new investment. I mean, let's just think about how, how, how could that be delivered, right? Um, ESCOM can't do it. It's broke. Uh, it cannot borrow more on its balance sheet. It has debt of around 480 billion rand. It has no possibility of raising new finance to uh, to invest in new, new capacity. Government can't do it. It's fiscally constrained. COVID has, has just made that uh, e even worse. So South Africa is now dependent on the private sector to invest in, in, in new power. And, and this is where we have, uh, run into this conundrum. It's, it's nurser, it's the relevant ministers as well. You ask why aren't, why aren't we why aren't we responding with more urgency uh, to this need? And I think it's it's a kind of ideological fog, you know, which which uh, doesn't enable people to see clearly first the problem and then secondly what needs to be done about it. Um, people still hold on to this notion of the developmental state and that ESCOM is a key instrument in delivering for, for the state um, to power our economy and to... Um, improve welfare. Well, frankly, we now know that it's not doing that, right? It's not keeping the lights on. Uh, the power cuts are extraordinarily damaging to our economy. I think they are a huge constraint on post-COVID e economic uh, recovery. Uh, and they're draining the fiscus. You know, I mean, again, I don't think there's a full appreciation just ab about how big those numbers are. Uh, last year, the, the fiscus transferred 49 billion rand to ESCOM as a bailout. This year, it's 56 billion rand. What does it spend that money doing? Uh, it's mainly to to uh, enable it to make its debt repayments. So it's not on maintenance, it's not on... No. no. And, it's debt, and its debt and principal 
repayments now are huge. I mean, I mean this year, uh, it has a debt obligation, both principal repayments and interest, of 94 billion rand. To put that in perspective, ESCOM's total revenues from electricity sales are around 180, 190 billion. You know, then it has to buy coal, it has to pay, pay its staff. It's simply not generating enough cash to service its debt. Its debt service cover ratio is less than 0.5. So your suggestion in your tweet earlier this week was to, was to separate, and, and there is a plan to do this anyway, is to sep- you know, the government wants to separate it out into three areas, uh, generation, transmission, um, uh, I forget the other one, but the distribution, yeah. uh, distribution, of course, the last the last few miles. But but it wants to control all of them, right? So um, instead of having an independent, a truly independent producer who will buy from anybody who's got electricity to sell, um, the under the government's plan, the the network operator um, will buy from ESCOM and other people, but it will always buy something from ESCOM, and there's a crazy notion that ESCOM will compete within itself as if it were working, you know, like a, a well-oiled machine. Um, I think the question that I, I, I just a, really, that was just an observation, but I think the question that I w- wanted to ask was, I mean, is there any, is there any real possibility? We know, we know what the ANC is. We know that it's ideologically stuck um, and can't move past this developmental state. Is there any real possibility even though it's obvious to possibly you and other experts of the private sector genuinely being able to build power stations or to build generating capacity and to sell it back into the grid? uh, Without question. Uh, And and they've demonstrated their willingness and and ability to do it already, right? So the Renewable Energy IPP program, the Independent Power Program, which was kicked off in 2011, and ran a series of highly, highly effective reverse auctions, right? Reverse in the sense that it's the lowest bid that, that gets the contract. Yes. Uh, brought in over those four major auctions, uh, more than 2 billion rand in more than 100 projects, uh, totaling around 6,500 megawatts. Right. Until that program was stopped by Coco and, and Malefi when they were there. And we've had this really tragic, uh, tragic for the, for the sector and, and for the economy, a five-year hiatus of no new procurements. I mean, it's, it's an astonishing fact that our energy minister has uh, had his portfolio now for nearly two years. In that period, uh, we have not seen one new government-backed contract for new power, right? We've been uh, in, 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 in uh, treading water, effectively, for five years. So... This increases the urgency, but, but let me come back to that question of, of unbundling and try and explain why it's so important and whether it will happen. So I, I was asked by the president uh, late uh, end of 2018 when, when load shedding started again um, to chair the ESCOM Sustainability Task Team. And he asked us to do three things. I mean, one was around... How do we restore governance and capabilities in ESCOM? The second was, how do we put ESCOM on a more financially sustainable path? But very interestingly, he said, you know, even if we fix ESCOM now, how do we prevent them coming back again with the begging bowl in a few years' time? How do we 
put them on a sustainable path, not just financially, but restructure it possibly so that we have a more sustainable business model. And so we, we put forward these recommendations. By the way, they're not new. They, they were in the 1998 yeah. G policy white paper, but never implemented and stopped by Alec Irwin. But, but to do what the rest of the world is doing, right? 106 countries around the world have embarked on this path of separating out the grid from generation. And the logic is this. You, you can get competition in the generation side. Anyone can come in and build power stations. In fact, with new technologies, with the growth of uh, private um, capital markets, it's becoming easier and easier to do that and to get more and more competition. But you need the heart of the system, the transmission grid, to be protected and, and to be the platform for doing the planning, for doing the procurement and the contracting of least cost power so that you get this competitive environment. ESCOM with the grid obviously has a conflict of interest, right? It's yeah. has its own generators and then it's running the grid as well and makes it difficult for other parties to access the grid. So this, this restructuring is absolutely fundamental to, um, uh, and will be the most profound change uh, in the sector in 100 years. And, and, and the president's accepted these, these proposals. Uh, they were in these sonar speeches. They were further developed in the public enterprises ESCOM roadmap. Uh, and they're now being implemented by ESCOM. And, and this, is, this is the most interesting change because, of course, one would expect a dominant incumbent uh, utility to resist uh, uh, competition to its, to its monopoly. But the new leadership in ESCOM have realized this truth, that they cannot keep the lights on anymore by themselves. That old kit is deteriorating every day. It's more and more expensive. And they, as I said earlier, they don't have the balance sheet to invest in new power. So they, they understand if we do keep the lights on, and of course they're always judged by that, right? Yeah. They need to be helped by the private sector, and we need now to make it easier for the private sector to come in and invest. And, of course, restructuring is part of doing that because you create this transparent and independent and fair platform. So they, they've started that process of ring-fencing these businesses. It will result in a separate uh, subsidiary company for the transmission, or what we call the ITSMO, the independent transmission and system and market operator by the end of this year. And then once the legislation is passed and once it's the licenses have been transferred, et cetera, that will go out as a separate uh, state-owned Anton, company. do you believe that will actually happen? Look, I think it's a fair question to to say, are there risks that, that this could still be held up? And, of course, this is a contested space, right? The, the, the unions are not very happy. They think of unbundling as a first step to privatisation, even though in our engagements, and certainly the president's spent a lot of time, a lot of political capital with uh, organised labour, explaining that that is not the intention, right? The grid will not be privatised. In fact, I don't think it should. It's a, it's, it's a natural monopoly. Yeah, fair enough, yeah. It, 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 it makes sense for the state to, to manage the heart of the system. Um, I am very encouraged by the commitment of the current ESCOM leadership. So, so they they have done a lot already to start doing this ring fencing, to get separate accounts, to start allocating staff to the different divisions. 
the next step is to separate out the assets and finally the debt, which is the most complicated thing, splitting between the three entities. But he's doing it. Um, I think uh, the president's key ministers, uh, Pravin Gordon as, as the shareholder minister in DPE and and Gwedi Mantasha, the energy minister, it's it's are less enthusiastic. But even that they have, uh, over the months now, began to talk about this as being an inevitability. I think some would like to see the, the, the process stop with a subsidiary company, subsidiary company of ESCOM Holdings. But I think that the momentum will be built to finally take it to that step where it goes out uh, completely. Back, back in 2012, you were talking in the NDP about the possibility of everybody being able to sell electricity back onto the grid. Yeah, so we've got some progress. Uh, I do it. Um, I, I have a home solar PV system with batteries and I sell a great deal of surplus back into the grid. Problem is that there's absolutely crazy regulation from the city that on, on an annual basis they'll cancel any surpluses outright. So they want me still to be a net consumer, although I'm drawing almost nothing from the city, including in winter, by the way. I mean, it's only a couple of days that I I'm, I'm, I might need to recharge my batteries. So that has to change, and, and I think that will change. Uh, there have been other interesting developments recently. Uh, there's a company called Solar Group, very smart company that has just uh, had a solar plant in the Northern Cape licensed, and it is wheeling, it will, will wheel once it's built the system, it will wheel that, across, that electricity across the grid yeah. And just signed an agreement with Amazon. Right? Amazon has large energy using data centers in Cape Town. Yeah. And its international offices said, you've got to go 100% renewables by 2025. So so this is happening. The big constraint there is is the licensing. NERSA, as, as you indicated earlier, is something of a roadblock at, at the moment. And hence, again, our, our uh, recommendations for regulatory reform there. I mean, why... Why do we actually need licenses, right? I mean, what's what's being protected here? So suggestions are now saying, well, small generators, at least up to 50 megawatts, should not require a license from from NERSA. I mean, if, if the planners want to know what's going on and, you know, who's building what so that we can plan the overall system, we'll re- require them to register. But again, that should not be a discretionary bureaucratic step. That should be a automated online process. Uh, what strikes me about all, all of it is how slow it is. You know, I, I think I'm right in saying, uh, you say Greta Mantasha has been Minister of Energy now for two years. Cyril Ramaphosa has been president for, I think, almost to the day, three years now. Um, and I don't, think, I don't think that we've created a single new megawatt of electricity in all that time. I might be wrong. As I said in the beginning, uh, ESCOM is adding a little bit as it completes Madupi and Kasila, but uh, yep, no new uh, power uh, um, uh, stations significantly come, come, coming online, no so new private one. In, the, in, in Ramaphosa's, uh, the president's recovery plan published last year, he talks, he talks about specific interventions in energy. Mm-hmm. And let me just run through them and ask you what's plausible and what's not. So, he, so the first is creating a transmission company from a restructured ESCOM and facilitating electricity trading. So we've spoken about that, and you think that's going to happen. 
securing additional 550 megawatts procured by ESCOM that will be connected by December 2020. Did that happen? So I think that refers to uh, when you do that, that hold up at the regulator, regulator at the moment. So ESCOM did go out on its own little procurement. You know, uh, co-generators, for example. Uh, that, so that didn't happen. Well, uh, I think it still will happen. Yeah, but it didn't happen by December 2020. No. Um, connection of additional 128 megawatts of IPP capacity. Where's that coming from? So there, there was a attempt uh, um, to talk to the existing renewable energy IPPs that actually generate more power than they contracted for. Oh, right. And basically, the contracts don't allow for that extra to be sold. They cap it. Yeah. So I, I, I think that... Um, I think that has started to happen. Certainly, the agreements around it, whether the final contracts are in place, I'm not sure. Right. Connection of bid window for IPP capacity, 1338 megawatts between January and June 21 and 279 by March 2022. So that's about 1,500, almost 1,600 megawatts between in the next year. Is I, is the, is the, is I, I've, I've lost track of the bid windows. What is it? Bid window four opened um, in um, 2014. Yeah. That's right. That was bid window. So, that, so that, that's what he's referring to there. So that, that's those are the projects that were awarded yeah. in 2015 and then were held up by ESCOM not signing. So when um, uh, soon after Ramaphosa came in, one of the first things that happened was uh, under Jeff Redebe, who was energy minister there, that those contracts were signed. So they, they've all, they're all being built and quite a few of them already come online. Okay. Um, enabling capacity through section 34 uh, to unlock 2000 megawatts. What is section 34? <laughs> so the, this is one of the crazy features of, of the South African planning and investment environment. I, mean, I think we have one of the most dirigest <laughs> command and control sectors in the world. I mean, certainly, certainly more than Russia or, or China. So, so the regulator cannot license a new generation plant that is not in the IRP electricity plan unless the energy minister provides a letter of deviation. And then the, the Act also allows the minister to make these Section 34 determinations, and they're extraordinary. They, they're based on the electricity plan, but then what he says, okay, we, we uh, are going to procure so many megawatts from, so, from this source and that source by a certain date uh, from certain people and um, ESCOM or some other body would purchase it. So these determinations then provide the, the regulatory framework for the IPP office to then launch these procurements. Right. So the only one that has been launched so far is the so-called risk mitigation IPP program. So it was part of those determinations that the minister made, far too late, by the way, in, in, yeah. in my view. Uh, uh, I mean, he, he said, you know, we, we have to procure power within months and the months have become years. Uh, and we still haven't actually signed contracts, but at least that request for proposal is out and uh, closes soon. And that's for 2000 megawatts. It's, it'll be very interesting to see what comes in there because it's a very complicated yeah. because they required firm power to be produced between 5 a.m. in the morning and 9 o'clock at night. 
So that kind of you know rules out wind, rules out solar by itself. And by the way, solar and wind are the cheapest sources. But I think we will see solar and batteries coming in, and then it'll be very interesting to see how they compare versus gas, and in particular these big uh, power ships uh, that have been uh, yes. uh, uh, bidding as well. You know, that's been sort of anchor in Saldana and Richards Bay. And talking about batteries, I read the other day that I think it was in Western Australia that batteries are now going to be installed that will be able to deliver almost two thousand megawatts. This is a, a really rapidly uh, moving field. You know, I mean, just just a year ago, the biggest utility battery was a hundred uh, uh, megawatt megawatt hours. I can't forget forget which, and that was the, the, the famous Tesla battery. You know, is uh, sort of Elon Musk because Musk said to South Australia because they were having some power problems. He said, "I I can get to you this battery in a hundred days." If yeah. I don't get it to you in 100 days, you don't have to pay me. Yeah. And, and since then, we've, we've just seen more and more of these kind of contracts, and each is bigger, huge battery in California now. And uh, this is the technology we need to, to watch because, like solar, uh, the costs are falling. I mean, solar prices over the last seven, eight years have dropped more than 80%. You know, they had what they call a learning curve, which means yeah. every doubling of the volume uh, produced and manufactured, they get a 20% reduction in, in cost at the moment. And that that's just keeps continuing. And battery costs are now uh, falling as well. So we're seeing innovation in technology, but mostly we're seeing huge advances in, in manufacture. You know, Elon Musk always says the biggest problem is, 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 is not the fundamental technology, it's how to do manufacturing really well. And he's... Um, building these gigafactories now, which are getting scale and bringing costs down significantly. And a, a battery that size would make an enormous difference to, to this country. You wouldn't need Section 34 to unlock 2,000 megawatts. You would just buy a battery big enough to plonk somewhere and attach it to the grid, which would run it down, presumably, during the night when it needed it, or poor weather. Yeah, that's. I mean, what what the system needs opt- optimally is we need new power, right? So, bat- batteries just help you to shift that power to times when you need it. But we still need more generation capacity, and that's that's the biggest challenge. And what the plans are telling us, not just in this country, but uh, across 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 the globe, is is because of these massive cost reductions in solar and wind. That's what you start with now. You 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 build as much as you can. To, to meet your demand. But of course, these are variable resources, right? They, uh, you know, the, the, the critiques of the power always, well, the sun doesn't shine at night and the wind doesn't always blow. It's partly true, of course, of course with sun, but with wind, it, it's less so if, if you have wind all over the country and the wind blows at different times. But you still need to complement these resources with fast reacting, flexible, complementary sources. So that could be pump storage, right? We have uh, some very significant pump storage schemes here at the moment, and ESCOM, when it has surplus power, pumps the water up to the top dams, and then when we need it during peak periods in the early evenings, it runs down. I mean, one, one of the reasons we're actually having load shedding at strange times, like on weekends at the moment, is that ESCOM's short of energy, right? So if we just had more solar during the day, we could be using some of that surplus solar to be pumping water up to the dams and, and then to be running down. Yeah. So pump storage is, is a technology. Gas turbines 
are perfect. You know, a gas turbine is like a big Boeing or GE engine, and we know how quickly those fire from idling to, to full power. And that's what you need. You need uh, highly responsive technologies that can quickly ramp, ramp up to compensate for when, when, when the sun goes down, for example, or when the wind is very well. Do we have the gas ants on? I, I presume what we have now, we would have to import, no? I mean, yeah, yeah. So, so, I mean, the only real options for us on gas now are liquefied natural gas. Yeah. And that would need to come on, on ships. There's a big, there's a huge debate in the sector at the moment whether we should do it at all. So gas is in the RFP electricity plan, but increasingly, you know, it goes back to the earlier discussion on batteries. It looks like there are real possibilities that as costs come down on batteries, they would be competitive with gas. So we don't know that fully yet. I mean, my sense is that we could go for a, a least regret kind of option. Yeah. We could go with these these floaters, these these floating uh, regas and, and gasification units, where uh, you know the LNG gets delivered, the the regas ship uh, trans transfers the liquefied natural gas into gas, and then you build a power yeah. station on shore. And the, the infrastructure is. Is mostly on the ships, right? I mean, so if we don't need it in in ten years' time, uh, those ships go go elsewhere. The last item on this little list is is and this is Gwede um, Mantasha again, and typically uh, prepare for the nuclear program at a pace and rate that is affordable. So, what is what is that again? Is that an idea? Just another ideological tick, or is it a reasonable proposition to have a little bit more? Nuclear power because it's stable and we're not scared of it, and you know we can we'll only build it when we can afford it. Is that is that kind of is that clear thinking? It's a very um, peculiar initiative, and, it, and it's very hard to understand from a political economy perspective because the, the nuclear constituency is not a very broad one. Right? I mean, we have a certainly have a cadre of highly skilled scientists and engineers that have been trained abroad and are fairly vocal and they try to always keep the Nuclear Energy Corporation of South Africa expanding and, and they're very closely linked to Nahawu who's been very effective in lobbying for them. But overall, it's a small constituency. So why why has this been done, given that nuclear doesn't feature in our electricity plans, right? It, it doesn't feature in any of the least cost options, not in the 2010 plan and not in the 2019 plan. It was forced in as a inverted commas policy adjustment. So why again? So, so of course, um, the opportunities for rent seeking, right? These very concentrated, big mega projects create lots of opportunities for rent seeking that renewables don't. Which renewables by their nature are distributed. The resource is distributed. They're built in small incremental units. There's much more competition. None of that applies in, in nuclear. And of course, they're mostly now government-to-government -government deals, and so much, much less transparency. So my, my concerns with nuclear are primarily economic. Uh, there, there is no way that current technology, so these very large reactor units, uh, larger than 1,000 megawatts each, the largest at right up to 1,600 megawatts, using the so-called generation 3-plus technology with all the additional safety passive safety requirements uh, can compete. The, the, the costs are too high. The only country in the world that is 
building them at a reasonable cost is China, but they have a massive program there, so they're getting sort of economies of scale as um, and learning there. There's no history of them exporting uh, competitive technology. And the other vendors, you know, Russia and the French and the US, Japan with Westinghouse, their generation three plus uh, units have been extraordinarily expensive. The one potential hope for the future is small modular reactors. So the logic there is that one would um, try and standardize the technology at a smaller and incremental scale. So you build as much of the units in factories and then ship to site and, and connect and assemble. But there's no commercial small modular nuclear reactor currently available that's operating. Uh, Russia has got two that are on a barge and on a ship, but there are no land-based land, land -based ones. So this is technology and development. And it's obviously crazy to be thinking about ordering small modular, modular, modular nuclear reactors when we don't even have prototypes up, up, up and running uh, to prove concepts. But it is, I mean, I have to say it's a very fast-moving area and there's a huge amount of investment uh, going into this in a range of countries, including actually for the first time from the private sector. So it's something we need to watch. But I think uh, Gwedi's... Uh, request for information now from nuclear vendors is 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 is, is, a, is just a distraction. It's, it's really not helping us do anything. And in fact, it's delaying him getting the next round, fifth round of the the reap auctions actually off off the ground. Lovely talking to you, Anton. I want to come back. I want to end with with just coming back to one of your recent tweets where you say South Africa needs to build sixteen thousand megawatts of new power by twenty thirty. That assumes that we have um, some economic growth by 2030 and that um, we will need that amount of energy, even if we do lose um, 11,000 megawatts because of redundancy, you know, because of old plant. Um, uh, it's 16,000 watts, perhaps, if you look at the economy now, not a little um, um, overambitious. No, we would need to build more than that, in my view. Um, I, I mean, just remember there are a couple of trends happening with ESCOM. So there is this decommissioning of old uh, old units. Uh, we're already short of power, so, so, so we don't have enough reserve margin now to deal with unexpected breakages. And then we have to factor in this long-term decline in the performance of ESCOM's plant. Now, and I think this is, this is the biggest shift that's actually happening now in the consciousness of... Uh, of government and ESCOM leadership. Now, in the past, the, the solution was always, well, ESCOM's just got to fix its power stations, right? I mean, then, then everything's okay. We used to have 90% availability. The availability now, by the way, I was just looking at the numbers, is 59%. So it is seasonal. It's slightly high in winter, but still 90 down to 59% over 15 years or so. But that trend is inexorable, in my view. Uh, uh, it's old kit and it's just really, really difficult to reverse that trend. They could try and stabilize it, um, but uh, the long-term trend is, is down. So we're short of power. Uh, we have to de decommission more power. The long-term trend is down. And even if we model very low uh, electricity growth, and the modelers are doing this, by the way, very conservatively now, uh, there's no question we need masses of amounts of new investment, uh, and that new investment has to be private.
Well, Anton, I hope that you are able to, in, in a position to um, prod away at the powers that be, because it's uh, it's no fun not having electricity, and it's no fun um, living in a country where the possibility of electricity is not that it's it's not that it's scarce, but I mean, electricity powers people's dreams, you know, and it powers investment, and we need it precisely, and and it, it could really hobble our, our post-COVID economic recovery. So, I, I mean, in my view, it's one of the most important. Yeah. issues we need to be dealing with thank you thank you so much for joining us look after yourself and stay stay safe um and and thank you so much for for joining me on podcast from the edge today oh, thank you peter uh, always a pleasure talking to you uh thank you for joining me and thank you for joining anton everhardt he's a wonderful guy full of patience and, and wisdom and, and thoughtfulness. It's the sort of person you want in your trench when you're in an energy hole. And the government is lucky to have people like him they can turn to when they need them. Uh, the question is whether they listen to them as well when they need them. Anyway, I'll be back next week with another guest, hopefully as interesting as Anton, to talk about the issues that matter in our lives in South Africa as we plough into 2021, as the news about the vaccines and the virus becomes more and more grim, we'll need to find a way through it and we can do it together. Please join me again next week.